Robots Alive with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robots Podcast. In this episode, we'll look at how an app promises to turn remote-controlled hexbug spiders into playful, smart and autonomous creatures. We're talking, of course, about Bots Alive, an ambitious and exciting crowdfunding project that's offering an add-on for six-legged hexbug robot spiders. The successful campaign secured over $30,000 for their app, which makes the bots behave more like a character than a robot. While the goal is to create lifelike behaviour, the Bots Alive team acknowledge the limitations of technology to emulate living creatures and have built their app within these limitations. Our interviewer Audro spoke to Brad Knox, founder of Bots Alive, about the idea behind the campaign and the novel way in which he uses machine learning to create a sense of character. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Brad Knox, and I'm the founder and CEO of Bots Alive. Mm -hmm. And would you tell me about Bots Alive? Sure. Uh, We are running a Kickstarter campaign right now for... Uh, these these toy robots that are meant for six to eleven year olds, and what they do, uh, they're these little critters uh, that solve obstacle courses, and they do it with very lifelike intelligence, and they'll socially interact with each other, and and they can also be taught to have their their skills and their personality affected over time through the interaction uh, with their owners. Mm-hmm. Would you describe what the bot looks like? Sure. Uh, so the robot itself is actually made by another company. It's a remote control toy called a Hexbug Spider. Um, and they're these, these really cool six-legged spiders. Um, and we're piggybacking on top of this remote control toy and giving it everything else that it needs to be an autonomous robot. Mm-hmm. And so how are you piggybacking? We are selling a smartphone kit. Uh, so your smartphone ends up being the, the eyes and the brain for for these, these Hexbug spiders. Um, the camera uh, can sense these fiducial markers, these, you know, these computer vision markers that you put on top of the spider and are on top of certain uh, vision blocks that it interacts with. And then the app does the decision making uh, for them. And then there's this infrared blaster that, that is part of the kit and you stick it in your audio, your, uh, your headphone jack, and it will emulate the remote control signals uh, for the spider and control it. Uh, so uh, you can kind of think of the, the infrared blaster kind of like the spine uh, that, 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 you know, the eyes and the brain send a signal down the spine. And then, uh, and then the, the Hexbox spider itself is, in a way, just the muscles. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what kind of things can the system do? Yeah, so a, a big part of what it is, uh, so the, the robot itself, uh, its its action space, its ability, like the various actions that it can do, is going forward, left, back, uh, back, right, forward, left, right, back, um, and then combinations of those and doing nothing, and and so the activities that it can do are all based on you know things that with that kind of navigation, um, and that includes. Uh, solving obstacle courses and mazes. So a big part of, of what kids 
uh, seem to really like is kind of being this like puzzle master where they create tests for the robot and see how well it can solve them. Uh, there's a vision block that's kind of a seeking or kind of a target vision block that the robot likes to be near. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a bunch that are obstacle blocks uh, that it that it tries to avoid or at least not not push into. Okay, and uh, these, these blocks, they're just little cups turned over, and on the back side they have a little marker, the fiducial marker. Uh, more or less, yeah. has a pattern on it so that yep. the camera can see it and then distinguish its uh, good or bad, right? That's correct. That's okay. correct, yeah. Um, yeah, so so that's a big part of what they do. Uh, we also just about ten days ago got two robot control working. So uh, these toys have two infrared channels, uh, which lets us control two of them at once mm-hmm. uh, by kind of cycling the the commands to robot one, then robot two, then robot one, robot two, and uh, and so we've got them. They can kind of race against each other to to get to the blue marker first, and so you, you know the kids can construct these these uh, kind of race courses in a way. Um, and then they'll we haven't done this yet, uh, but they'll also uh, socially interact, uh, which I mentioned before. And mm-hmm. and what that entails. So I, I definitely I could imagine someone here socially interacting and be like, well, what are these like really simple spiders going to do that socially interacts like that? That sounds like fluff. And and the the way that the way that I mean it when I say socially interact is that when you see them, it'll feel that they're socially interacting. And so they'll do that through uh, things like their proximity, um, mm-hmm. keeping a kind of social uh, proximal distance, um, things like reaction time, that when robot one robot does something, that the other reacts within a certain window of time that, that feels like it's it's uh, causally connected. Okay, um, so it's it socially connected. Okay. Exactly. Things like co-attention, where one robot uh, might look at an object and the other robot kind of clues in and, and looks at that object as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of nonverbal things that just with with motion that we can do to communicate that they're they're interacting. Gotcha. Are they aware of anything other than the fiducial markers? Uh, at this point, no. Okay, so they they interact with the objects that have the markers at this moment. Yes. Yes. Okay, and so the user can move one of the markers close to it, and then it can act surprised that it got there all of a sudden, or it... right, right. So you can make these various obstacle courses. You can make uh, you can make walls. You can make little cages. So like one thing that uh, is is kind of interesting. It will we'll get into the the AI a little bit later, I'm sure. Yep, um, but one thing that's kind of cool to see is if you if you trap it, at least given the current behavior it has. Um, if you trap it and put the target block outside the trap, mm-hmm. it'll usually eventually, very slowly and hesitantly, push its way out of the trap. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if there's no target block, then it kind of hangs out and stays inside the, the cage or the trap. Um, and then also we've seen some other things that uh, that we didn't expect but are like, really cool to see. Um, so some kids will stack these vision blocks, which are mm-hmm. pretty like precarious to stack. And then put the the target block on the top, which makes the robot come and knock their tower down. Um, so we've seen a fair amount of that, uh, which is kind of a whole extra facet that we we didn't expect, but but is you know part of the play. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Now, how is this not your standard AI? Yeah. Control? So yeah. So the the AI itself, um, the the big differentiation is is not necessarily with uh, with AI uh, in, in general, um, mm-hmm. but rather with uh, what you might call character AI. So 
AI that is used to create non-player characters in video games or electronic mm-hmm. toy characters, including robots. Um, the way that this, and, and I think the big differentiation between what I'm calling character AI and normal AI is that character AI uh, is not just focused on solving tasks, um, mm-hmm. that there's also a sense of personality and agency, you know, that, 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 that this is a character that cares about outcomes Okay. Um, possibly emotional expressivity, things like that. Um, and the big, the big difference in what we're doing and what is normally done to create character AI is that. Um, so first, I'll, I'll say how it's normally done. So normally, you would hand code a character AI. Uh, you would possibly come up with a bunch of rules uh, that dictate the behavior, like if-then rules. Maybe they you know, go into some sort of decision tree. Maybe mm-hmm. you hand code a finite state machine, um, but ultimately it's it's hand coded, mm-hmm. um, and there's there's limitations in how well we can write down a set of rules um, yes. or any kind of structure to describe how we would behave um, or how a character should behave that really captures um, authentic behavior. You know, like in the same way that um, if you take a psychology research methods class. Uh, there's a very, very strong chance that you'll learn that if you want to know what somebody will do in a situation, you don't ask them, you don't give them a survey unless you like that's the unless that's your only option. Mm-hmm. You don't ask them, you observe them, you put them in the situation, and you actually see what they would do in that situation. And I think the normal way of creating characters is kind of akin to asking the developer uh, what an authentic character and a believable character would do. Um, and so what we're doing is is kind of closer to observing what the you know what the developer or in our case kind of this, this puppeteer uh, would do. So what we do instead is we have a human teleoperator uh, puppeteer the robot through a lot of different situations. And this is just to be clear, this is all during development. This is I'm not talking about something that the user does. Yep. Um, and so this developer slash puppeteer controls the robot in a lot of different situations. And then we take all the data from those control sessions and we apply machine learning uh, to get a model of the teleoperator. And this model ultimately, it's, you know, its sole purpose is to answer the question in, in scenario or in context X, what's the probability that the teleoperator would have done action Y? Uh, and given that model, uh, it can control the robot instead of the human teleoperator, um, and, and it can control it in the style of the human teleoperator. You know, to the extent that we were able to one capture the important information uh, that like describes why the the teleoperator did what he or she did. Mm-hmm. Um, to the extent that we can capture that in the data, and then also that the model itself uh, can, you know, the machine learning can capture that in the model. Okay. Um, so ultimately, what that does is we we hope and so far we we've seen a decent evidence for this but but the idea is that by having a person who is immersed in in this teleoperation and this control experience um as the source of the behavior we can capture spontaneity we can capture error uh we can capture reaction time um all these things that we would be fairly hard pressed to put in uh, in a set of rules, um, things that we're not necessarily even aware uh, that we're doing. Um, and and so our hope is that this technique 
is a way to get a you know a qualitative a meaningful step forward in how organic and alive characters feel compared to 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 character AI uh, that's made today. Mm-hmm. So who are these teleoperators? Is it you and other people in the company? Yeah. So right now it's it's me um, and. Luckily, so right now, the the benefit of it being me is that uh, we have not tackled the problem of making this uh, kind of training. You know, this is this is learning from demonstration. It's a branch of machine learning. We haven't mm-hmm. tackled the problem of the user experience. You know, so it's it's one thing for for the algorithm developer to be able to train it, um, and you know that can be challenging uh, on its own. You know, trying to figure out whether you know certain data samples are, are bad data and trying to avoid that and so on. Yep. Um, and, and so there's definitely a benefit to, uh, you know, to me being the, the trainer for now. Um, and, and then also like one thing that's kind of nice is I, I used to do improv. Uh, I was never particularly amazing at it. I was good enough to get on stage and to get in and do a few troops. But then once I was cool. on the troops, I was, I was often the, you know, one of the worst people on there. Um, but, but decent. And so I get to kind of exercise that muscle of of kind of just really getting immersed into the character and trying to empathize with it, and um, and control it in in a way that 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 I hope is is compelling for for people to interact with. Gotcha. Now, how do you come up with cases uh, to test and develop reactions to? Yeah, that's actually a really I think that's a really good question. Um, it's it's somewhat iterative. You know, it's a it's a process of First, imagining a set of heuristics uh, of how the robot should behave, uh, kind of thinking them up. So this part is is somewhat akin to the the hand coding of a character AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you actually follow those heuristics, uh, but but treat them very much as heuristics that can be violated if it feels right to violate them. So you want to do what feels right in the moment, uh, while while also kind of following these 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 heuristics roughly. Um, but then in in controlling it, often new things arise. You start to see, oh, well, this this could happen here. Um, and and so you you know there's this kind of cyclical iterative process of you do some teleoperation that informs the, the like the set of heuristics and the the kind of personality and behavior that you're you're trying to put into the robot. Um, and then you do some more teleoperation. And then there's also a lot of uh, testing. And sometimes things arise when you're testing the learned behavior that you didn't you didn't explicitly train. Um, and sometimes they're really good. I mean, sometimes they're things you didn't want, and so you try to, you know, either add more training data or change the algorithm to fix them. But then sometimes they're they're things you didn't expect. So actually, some of the behaviors that we explicitly uh, now that we now explicitly put in there are ones uh, that we originally did not uh, put in there and just arose. Um, so that's one way. And then also um, doing playtesting, actually putting in users' hands uh, is another source of, of kind of ideas for, for what the, the situations. Do. Yeah. I and I think a lot of it really is about knowing the limitations of what your, what your algorithm can learn, you know, like what, what uh, discriminatory information it has, mm-hmm. uh, and finding ways to control within those constraints, um, you know, or find features that will will reduce those constraints in a way that 
that helps. Um, and then really just trying to like squeeze out all the possible, like, you know, mm. the complexity and all the like possible interesting, uh, behaviors within those constraints. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, how do, how do you make this combination of observing behavior in different situations work with something that's kind of goal oriented? So if you want the robot to go from one spot to another, how do you balance its reactions to, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, so how do you make it um, goal oriented? I suppose at the same time as this, right? Um, so that that gets a little bit. I, I think that gets a little too under the hood um, for for what I could talk about. Um, I can say that uh, you know this is this is fairly related though. Um, so there's there's a lot of work, of course, on robotic pathfinding, um, and mm-hmm. not a lot of work on like if you wanted to have a robot follow a path um, with some sort of expressivity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so like if you wanted to seem angry while well, it's following a path, or if you wanted to seem scared while well, it's following a path. Yep. Um, from my, you know, from talking to a few people that, that work in uh, related spaces and my own like uh, lit search, there doesn't seem to be a lot on that topic. Um, and so I do think there, there are challenges around how do you make something uh, goal-oriented and you know, still able to, you know, you know, we want something that seems to both have experience and have emotions, mm-hmm. um, but also has what you might call agency, where it has, it, it cares about outcomes and it acts to affect those outcomes. Um, and I think that's an area where you know, there there could be a lot of, lot more work. And we have our own approach that. Um, you know, it's definitely part of what, what I've been explaining, um, but I, I can't get into the details. And so yeah, I think fine. I think that's actually a really interesting area for for someone to possibly pick up as research. This this combination of uh, expressivity while also still uh, still achieving goals. Interesting. OK. And now you mentioned emotions like walking angry and this kind of thing. How do you make it so that the emotions seem to make sense to the user that the robot's experiencing? Yeah. Is there some sort of state transition matrix or something like this? Or a uh, finite so, state machine or something like this? Well, it's you know, so we're, we're using uh, we're using supervised learning. Um, yep. So basically, you know, it's 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 what's called learning from demonstration. Um, and learning from demonstration, you uh, it's kind of what I described, but mm-hmm. a demonstrator, whether it's a person or or some you know computational system, uh, it is controlling the agent or the robot uh, through a lot of different uh, states or observations, mm-hmm. and you end up with this big body of data, you know, hopefully big, you know, uh, yeah, that, uh, that has individual uh, samples that are a vector of features um, or you know, some, some measurements Correction. that yep. describe the state um, or the context, and then the label, which is the action that the demonstrator took. Um, and so what we're doing is we're, we're applying supervised learning. Um, we may, you know, we may eventually do something like inverse reinforcement learning for it. Oh, do you uh, say, and then you say that this state is angry or this state is sad or something like this. So and so it labels ex- it in that sense? Not explicitly. Sense? It's, it's, uh, it's more that as long as the context holds the information necessary to bias the actions towards a set of actions that, that will appear angry, mm-hmm. um, 
then it should be able to be captured in the model. You know, I'm speaking like somewhat, somewhat hazily, but, but I think that's, mm-hmm. that's more or less the gist of it. Gotcha. Um, and, I, and I will say, uh, you know, I, I used angry as a example. Um, and I'm not actually totally, uh, certain that anger is one emotion that the, the spiders, uh, at least at this Emo- point communicate very well, but people very much do see, they see hesitation. Mm-hmm. Um, they often see anxiety, Oh yeah. Um, they sometimes see like celebration. <laughs> um, so you know, like it, it, there's definitely expressivity that happens. I think there is a lot of openness to interpretation, um, which, which I think Nuance. can be a good thing. Um, yeah. And I think, I think there's some nuances that we'll, we'll learn over time ex- to like really, you know, I think it, I think it's helpful for their, it to be somewhat of a blank canvas for people to put narrative and to, to project story onto, um, but you don't want it to be too blank um, mm-hmm. because you know, then like there's there's nothing to stimulate that storytelling. Um, and so one thing I, I'm kind of looking forward to is is kind of developing a more sophisticated understanding through, you know, through the development and testing with users of uh, like how exactly that that should be balanced. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so one thing you talk about with the users is managing expectation for this mm-hmm. robot. Can you tell me Definitely. a bit about that? Yeah, so I think that you know one of the challenges, especially with with how hyped robotics and, and AI is right now, is uh, if you're making a consumer product that's, that's robotic, um, that there's this expectations game that we play, um, and I I think that if the robot is is humanoid, um, if it if it talks, then there's going to be very high expectations that are set. And, um, and, and my sense is that, you know, and this is just one, one person's intuition, but my sense is that, uh, that these systems, if they are humanoid or if they're talking, that they are ultimately going to, to disappoint their users, at least on a social interaction level. Um, mm-hmm. Unless, like the Amazon Echo, uh, social interaction really isn't a strong part of the promise. Um, and so I think that, again, does go back to expectation setting, where it's more of just this question and answer or command and response system that you don't expect to have a, like a reasonable conversation with. Um, and so what we're doing is kind of going the opposite extreme. Um, like a big part of our company philosophy is to just do very simple animal-like robots um, so that the expectations are low and, and then we can surpass them. You know, that, that like people, people don't, the, the level of intelligence and interactivity and so on that someone expects from another person or from a dog or a cat is just so much higher than what they expect from like a spider or something. A spider that robot specifically. Like a hamster. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And I think also another thing that um, if we were making our own robots and I think the spider does this pretty well too, but if we were making our own robots, um, I think we would probably be biased more towards uh, kind of abstract kind of cartoonish uh, representations of animals. Uh, so actually cartoonish makes it sound like they're like goofy or something. But what I mean is they're more like symbolic um, that they're, they're okay. like simplified and a lot of the, like the fine details are, are removed um, again, kind of making a little more of a blank canvas um, to where in the end you might say like, Oh, well, this is a mammal or this is like a, an insect um, but not really a strong, kind of specific mapping to any, any, like any species. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Is it anything more than just the aesthetics of it? So, like, how it looks just uh, in the yeah, form? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I think the looks are very important for setting expectations, but the behavior as well. You know, so I mentioned talking. Um, you, know, you know, this is it, – it's always uh, – it's, it's dangerous as, a, as an academic who, has, you know, has done a lot of research that at least I would like to consider rigorous to then talk about the things that I have not actually researched um, and that are more like, you know, me philosophizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like my, my intuition is that if a system talks to you, you expect it to be as smart as other things that talk, which is basically people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I think that's just one example of how behavior also is a really important way that expectations can be set. Um, and it can be really jarring when, when we have those expectations broken or just at least very like memorable, like, um, you may remember IBM Watson in the, Jeopardy. in the Jeopardy competition, mm-hmm. uh, where I believe it was, it was being prompted about a U.S. airport and it said, uh, like the city that some U.S. airports in, and um, and it said like, "What is Toronto?" Um, and it was like very memorable for people. Um, and I think in part because the computer was so smart that it sh- it was just very striking that it was so stupid I know. in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that, and I think that's a, a good illustration of how we kind of align expectations when we get a little bit of evidence for like the intelligence or the skills of some system that we kind of align that with what we know from the natural world. Um, and we fill in a lot of the gaps of, you know, the things that we haven't seen evidence for. And then it can be very surprising and sometimes disillusioning to see that those expectations aren't met. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, do you have any anecdotes or stories of, uh, people using bots alive your hexabot yeah um yeah so let's see so we we did like a number of of play sessions uh one very early when we first got like a really basic version of the ai working uh and then uh, a few weeks i think like a few weeks before the kickstarter campaign started um and it was really interesting to see the the kids and you know with the 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 newer more more feature rich version there's definitely still things we'll be adding to it um some of the things that we observed was um let's see so one thing that was interesting was that kids were very concentrated while they interacted with it um so the 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 when they did smile it was usually because they were looking up like at an adult or a sibling Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of doing a like a look what I made uh, kind of <laughs> kind of uh, expression, um, and it seemed like somewhat akin to like them playing a board game that's very challenging. Um, and that was something that uh, wasn't horribly surprising, but it wasn't totally expected either. Uh, that they would really be such like a concentrated activity for them, mm-hmm. um, and and there were definitely times where like especially when there were multiple kids uh, where they would, there would be like moments of like joy and, and like, Oh wow. Like, I can't believe like, the robot did that. Like, Oh, that's so silly or that's goofy. Um, but it really predominantly, it was, it was like, it was like they were engaged in a task. Um, and, and another thing that I thought was really uh, cool to hear. Uh, so near the end, I started asking uh, near like the last few play sessions, I started asking, uh, what, let's see, what would I say? What toy game 
or animal is this most similar to? And almost all of them chose an animal. Uh, you know, so one of them said it was like their pet turtle. Uh, mm-hmm. One said it was like a horse uh, that like is in one of I, I think it's like an English style, but basically where they run around the the, the obstacle courses with a rider on top. Okay. Um, and uh, that was really what I, was, I mean. That's what I was hoping to hear that that they would find it more animal like than than toy like. Um, and uh, yeah, and then another thing that that I was also really pleased to find uh, is so we we designed this so that the screen on the phone would be a reference point rather than a focal point. Mm-hmm. Um, so like really the part of like. You know, like a big thing that we're aiming for is illusion of life. And the AI kind of goes towards that end. Um, but also we try to make everything happen to the, as much as possible in the physical world uh, rather than through a digital interface. Um, and I was really pleased to see that the kids, the kids did seem to use the screen as something just to check in on every once in a while uh, to see, you know, like are, are the vision blocks and the robot being seen in the camera and so on, kind of get their idea of what the, like the frame is, uh, for, for what the camera can see. Uh, but then they, in the, 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 to be clear, the phone in these sessions was propped up on the edge of a table, so they didn't have to hold it or anything like that. Um, and then they would basically just play, uh, you know, 90 plus percent of the time they were just down below the phone, uh, playing with the spiders, uh, as if, you know, as if there was no phone involved at all. Okay. And so what is, the long-term goal or vision of your company? Our long-term vision is to, you know, all of this could change. We're, we're a startup and, uh, you know, there's, there's tons of lessons constantly coming in. Uh, but our long-term vision is to create very simple pet-like robots um, and ones that can provide value in terms of uh, fascination, delight, entertainment, uh, but also a little bit of companionship. Um, and one way I, I like to put it is that, you know, if if uh, like a dog or a cat, in terms of like companionship value, if those are, you know, like somewhere between like eight and 10 on a 10 point scale, um, and a lot of alternative pets, like, you know, like a turtle or an iguana or something like that, um, or gerbil, those might be in like you know the the one to to four range. I'm sure some owners of these animals will vehemently disagree with me. Um, and actually, I'd be super interested to hear from them. Um, but uh, my hope is that we can create something that's you know like like a, a five or a six uh, in like five years or so, uh, and it's just this this very simple animal that uh, you know animal like robot that is ever present in your environment that, you know, it recharges itself and it's just there and active whether you're there or not. Uh, but it's also interested in you. And so you can interact with it and get value from it, from, from interacting directly, from acting as kind of the hand of God and, you know, messing with its environment in the same way that, that bots, the current bots of life product lets you do. Um, but also because it's just always on, you can kind of, you know, there's so low, so little effort to keeping it up that you can actually get value out of just glancing at it. You know, in the same way that you like walk past your fish tank and you like look at it for maybe five seconds and think like, oh, that's beautiful or that was interesting or oh, like look what the what, look look what that fish did. I didn't expect that. Um, that we can really like have like a wide range of of how people can get 
get value from these and how, you know, how one single person from week to week gets value, you know, like, so maybe they're really busy one week. Um, and so they don't interact with it. Uh, but just having it there and having it as another presence in the room that feels alive and kind of can be checked on here and there, uh, that that would provide some value. Um, and we have like a, we have a national science foundation, uh, SBIR grant, uh, phase one to this, to this end, uh, to make these companionable pets, um, so this will this grant covers a lot of the software R and D for the Kickstarter Bots Alive product, um, and then also we'll we'll uh, likely be able to to push it forward a little bit beyond uh, to kind of think about like what our next product will be um, with with this this grant money. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And that's the end of today's episode. But if you haven't had enough yet, just go to robohop.org for plenty more robotics-related news, articles, videos, and of course, podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye! Bots Alive with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.